So what is the status of your golf game? It's just terrible. Okay. Uh, so I, but it exists. Oh, right? it does. Yeah, I have golf clubs and everything. Sometimes I have more balls in my bag than two, so it's great. Uh, the the story goes though. A few six weeks ago, I guess now, I uh, I sprained my ankle really bad to the point where I woke up the next morning and I almost fell down the stairs like chasing after the kids. I don't know if I've told the story before, but um, it it was bad enough to where that next morning I we had to get somebody to come over to watch all the kids so that we could go to uh, Ortho Indies mm-hmm. or urgent care facility. And they were like, yeah, you didn't break anything, but you sprained it pretty bad, but you're probably going to wish you broke it. And so six weeks on, I've canceled numerous rounds of golf. I wouldn't cancel uh, a round of Crooked Stick. And quite literally, a couple of the members like drove by us as we were getting away from a tee and they're like hey that's great technique because i would basically swing pick my back leg up and start hopping on my front leg so it was a disaster and so that's been about three eight three four weeks now and so this weekend uh, the club championship which is a three day tournament so 18 holes each day uh, i didn't think i wasn't going to sign up and i hadn't I thought signed up and then I get the text reminder that hey club championship participants here's the format <laughs> and so apparently at the beginning of the season I signed up and I'm like well now I feel bad so I guess I'll, I'll go ahead and play and the first day out I somehow found my way into the lead and then the second day I absolutely lost that lead <laughs> the third day my kids came out and watched me for a couple of holes and I had to I had a quad on a par three it was just it was embarrassing but it, it still hurts, but my golf game hurts worse, and so, you know, whatever. But it's it's fine. I'm looking forward to playing uh, with you guys before too long, the end of next month. So yeah, exactly. Great. I've been trying to find my game. I'm coming off surgery on my wrist from November, yeah. and it's taken me a long time to get back and hit balls twice over this weekend, and it, it was embarrassing. Yeah. 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 I almost snapped a club. I yeah. wanted to snap a club. <laughs> I may have uh, thrown a couple clubs into the ground pretty hard. It was a little embarrassing in front of my kids, but it is what it is. Yeah. So, I mean, there are other hobbies out there. Just saying. There are. It's true. There are. But, uh, you know, this one, it's a life skill. It's a life skill. You got to teach kids. Gotta, you re- learn more about a person in, in a four-hour round of golf than most people beat and you spend more time with anywhere else because it's just one-on-one usually or two-on-two, whatever. And you're just really – getting to know that person through how they act and respond. And so I, even if I'm mad at myself, I always try to make sure I say nice things about the other people so they do not know I'm a complete jerk or anything like that, just to myself. So there you go, mm-hmm. folks. Yeah. Golf and life lessons. To spend four hours with someone, it's a long time. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I notice our rounds only take about two and a half hours, so that makes, about sense. It makes sense. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. when you uh, <laughs> hit every fairway, yeah. Green in regulation 18 yeah. times in a yeah. row and, and maybe about 22 putts around. Yeah, it yeah. goes pretty fast. It goes pretty quick. It does. It does. Mm. Yeah. Rory. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, well. so another little side story. Um, we were at IWF, which is the International Woodworking Fair down in Atlanta last week. Mm-hmm. Um, coincidentally, a lot of the players, if not all of them, were staying at the same place. And Thursday morning, our last day there, we'd already seen a couple of different players uh, throughout the week. And sitting there um there's a coffee line right right literally right next to where we're sitting and i just happened to kind of look up from my phone and saw a guy holding a daughter and did a double take like holy shit that's roy mcelroy like (laughs) he kind of looks at me like hey roy he's like morning yeah that was it i turned back to these guys like (laughs) pretty cool yeah yep so you know who we were rooting for yesterday i could guess yeah i'm glad that came about yeah he played well yeah Yeah. hanging out coffee line hotel lobby gym clothes pushing his daughter's little 
place to roll it around to four days later having another $18 million in his pocket. It's terrible. Must be awful, be Rory. I don't know how you do that. I don't know. How do you walk around with $18 million in your pocket? Like you'd fall over. Yeah, it would. It would be a problem. Yeah. That's a big check, too. Really big check. Yeah, hopefully that one windy. <laughs> well, we're going to do whether you guys cash those checks or not. All right. Yeah, All right. True. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Industrious Podcast. Thank you for joining us today from wherever you get your podcasts. And if you happen to be tuning in on the Assessa YouTube channel, thank you for doing so. Um, if you haven't subscribed, hit the little subscription uh, button there. And don't forget to hit the notification bell so you can learn or be alerted when new episodes drop. Today's guest is Mr. Mike Bogers from the National Bank of Indianapolis. Mr. Bogers, welcome to the Industrious Podcast. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> Why don't you uh, introduce yourself, if you would? Yeah, so I'm Mike Bogers, uh, Commercial Relationship Manager with the National Bank of Indianapolis, uh, located here in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, you know, it's a, been a long road to get here, kind of interesting uh, career path, I would say. I, can't, I grew up in northwest suburbs of Chicago <clears throat> and uh, decided to come down here for school. And the joke goes, uh, I really just wanted to get away from my family. I didn't care what it cost, and so I went to DePaul University in Greencastle. Uh, which uh, still I'm paying student loans and mine will not be forgiven. So that's always nice. Um, and you know, it was the only place I wanted to go. I really, really loved it here. Um, and thinking back to 96, 95 or thereabouts when I visited campus uh, to what it looks like today, it's, it's remarkable the differences and the changes and to student aesthetics and also uh, overall philosophy. So it's kind of crazy, but uh, came out of school in 01 and <clears throat> there wasn't a whole lot of great opportunities in 01 for jobs. And so I, I put my name in a hat for several, didn't really find a good fit and decided because of the student loans, I needed to get to work. And so a bank here in Indianapolis called the Union Planners Bank out of Memphis and Nashville, Tennessee, uh, decided to hire me. It's a uh, formerly would have been Indiana National INB and BD, and BD for Chicago. And so I worked there uh, in retail management, <laughs> which retail <laughs> banking, oh boy, it's something else. I mean, it is, it is a retail in general is some of the toughest jobs uh, for sure out there and retail banking. Uh, has got to be one of the least uh, exciting, for sure. Um, but what that what makes it so? Just out of curiosity. I'm going to make sure we spread this podcast out to all your retail <laughs> companies. Yes. Yeah. No, it's just, it's really hard because you see, and it, it, the rest of the bank doesn't fully understand it. I, I believe personally that everyone from the CEO down should be able to run a teller cage, should know how to, to balance a book and or balance a cage and a drawer. And it, it, what it really comes down to is they are everything. And if you forget about that, um, the fact that the one interaction can take a relationship, mm -hmm. even the biggest commercial relationship, can be uh, great one day, and then they have a really bad interaction in a banking center, which is a whole different topic, um, and, and the whole relationship can turn. And so it's really um, a lot of thankless uh, effort. Um, it, it, they're not as well rewarded as they probably should be, and you know that that you can extrapolate that in any which way you want to. And I think we're seeing that now with the jobs issues people looking for more recognition or more control, and they don't want to be in that teller window or, or, or managing a banking center. 
um, just because it's it's not as rewarding maybe as they had hoped. Uh, and so when I came out of college, I really felt like that may not have been where I wanted to be ultimately. And I think it probably on some days you could see it on my face and uh, my friends and family at that time would probably have said, yeah, we need to get him out of there as fast as possible. But five years later, I rolled out, rolled in credit, really learning how do you look at, at, at banking opportunities from uh, varied industries, right? I have no specification. I really am a um, at-large banker where I can take in any kind of industry in any, um, in any walk of life or any stage of the business. Yeah, so I learned it from there, and then uh, in 08, I moved into full-on uh, commercial relationship management. And so I've been a, a, just a couple of banks in the city, but the National Bank of Indianapolis is where I am now and where I, I want to be uh, going forward. It's just uh, one of those places that marries how I, I want to look at a client relationship where they feel like I actually care about them and I know them and I know the depth of their family and, and by that also their, their employee base. And the bank does that too. Like the bank really believes that every single one of our clients matters, where uh, I think a larger institution, even the ones I've come from, I would suggest <clears throat> many of them were just a number on a page somewhere in another state uh, where we're here, we're local, we're only here. Uh, we obviously will travel across borders with our clients, but for the most part, it's just Indiana, Indianapolis specifically, and that has afforded us an opportunity. And, you know, the bank was founded by the, the Maurer family, and Mickey and Maury, when they founded the bank, had a, a philosophy that, you know, you really can't um, move outside of the dollar the collar counties until you banked every creditworthy client in the collar counties. Well, that's impossible, right? You, you, you're never going to have 100% market share. Right. And so it was a very interesting philosophy, and it's afforded us the opportunity to really zero in on the clients that we want to bank with and we want to have as clients. And it it's, I think, it served them well, you know, from you know, starting in the early 90s to today, growing from zero to, you know, three and a half billion dollars in, in assets. It's a, it's a big feat. And the, the people that came on, there's a group of like 26 at the beginning in 93, and many of them are still employed with the bank, which is crazy when you think about that. Uh, high client retention, high customer um, overall retention, and then high uh, employee retention. And that's all because of the way the bank is founded. And that's why I think, you know, eventually we'll probably talk about why you'd want to bank at an institution of our size or our, our maybe central focus. And uh, it's really all that. Y you all matter. And uh, it feels very different. Yeah, we that was, really that mentioned was, this. Did you rehearse that in front of a mirror? <laughs> Boy, that, was, that was well, like that whole monologue. Just. It's, you know, it's one of those things that they really drive into. No, I'm just kidding. It's uh, it, when it's something you believe in, you really, and you really know that the people in leadership believe it too, it's easy. Yeah. So. We're in a relationship focused business. Um, anybody can buy a, buy paint from, from anyone just about. Um, so why do they buy from us? Same thing we kind of touched on with you earlier. What what do you feel is the biggest key in terms of relationship with your customers or what you've seen in the banking industry in general that um, I guess makes you feel comfortable of, uh, with client retention? Yeah, I, I think um, 08 and uh, yeah. maybe even this, this particular um, recessionary period that we're in now, it's how you, uh, I have a, a, an old friend who was, he was an investment manager, investment broker, and he said any, any guy, any girl, that if they put a you know, bunch of stocks up on the wall could throw a, target, throw a dart at the target and, and hit and make money in a good market, yeah. you really make your bones with your client 
when it's a bad market or when something bad's happened. And though I wasn't at the National Bank of Indianapolis in 08 and 09 and 10, there was a flight to safety. And a lot of people think that you had to be safe. You had to go to a big bank. Well, people believe that our balance sheet and the people that were leading our bank were so good that there was no risk to the bank at that time either. And they did. They saw a flight to safety to the National Bank of Indianapolis. And that, I think, really is everything. Why, why do clients want to bank with us? It's because we know them and we have the ability to, in, in a lot of ways, make decisions that wouldn't be made at other institutions because once you get to a certain point in a larger institution, by that I mean the business has, say, maybe had a bad financial year or maybe a couple of years in a row, that likely puts you on a road into being in a, a workout department or a special assets division that really is there to try to ascertain whether or not you're going to make it. Well, that's like our job, right? We want to make sure that we know you. And, and at the National Bank of Indianapolis, the, the management and the leadership and the skills that they possess and the advisors that are around, CPAs, attorneys, insurance, all those, uh, the guys and girls that are, are their core group of people around them, we'll take a look at all of it and try to understand, okay, how, if they get themselves into a position that they maybe other companies wouldn't get themselves out of, why can the Todds get themselves out of it? What, what is it about them? And I think that's that's what really played out during those really hard cycles. And obviously in 08, that was a banking-centric problem. Now, 2021 and two, it's not a banking-centric problem. It's completely reversed because now you have banks with so much money on their balance sheets because the government has dumped money into the market to try to make sure that the whole system doesn't collapse. The banks are, are very liquid. Now it's a matter of switching that liquidity into asset earning or earning assets. Uh, so try to figure out how can we find more people that need our money that fit into our model. And so I think that's, you know, that's kind of what sets us apart to some extent and pushes us forward. Do you know what I just took from that? <laughs> yes. Free sample day. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's always tomorrow, it. it's right? A, it's on my truck. I got it. Don't worry about it. Nice. Yeah. He said sample day, yes. Free. I heard so much <laughs> cash. That, you know. Yeah. It just that's that's you know, what yeah. you say, what I hear. You no. Know, you are so good at hearing what I'm putting down. It's impressive. Nice. You, you're picking it up, you got it. Smart. 100%. Well you know us. We we're no short we're not short for uh, ideas and opportunities to uh, put some of that to work. Absolutely. Sometimes 100%. people just say we're short. Yeah. I'm like, well, thanks, that, mom. This is true yeah. as well. All right. <laughs> got it. Um, so you were starting to go down this path, but not quite. So I'm going to ask the, the logical question here is, um, crystal ball time. Sure. A lot of different theories out there right now, uh, from soft landing to holy shit, this is going to be a lot worse than people think. What's, uh, from a, what you're seeing on the finance side, what do you think about 2023 at this point? Yeah, I think, uh, and again, just holy, just crystal ball asks, so have no full understanding or grasp and I don't honestly know if anybody does yeah. to see what's going to happen but I think that <clears throat> no matter how you define a, a recession you're in one just by the classical definition and so I, I to some extent understand why there's some ability and why and I mean, in general there's such a weird political issue right now but why people are willing to give some latitude on we're not in a recession yeah yeah, yeah it says that we're in a recession, but we're not in a recession because there are so many other forces that don't make any sense. Because if you look at the you know the the unemployment number at three and a half, if you look at you know all all of the um, 
sort of some of it has slowed down, but the housing starts and you look at um, people that are actually signing up for unemployment or want to try to get into the unemployment um, side of the relief uh, from an economic standpoint. Those numbers are traditionally not the same for a true recessionary period, right? You usually see spikes in those things, people not able to... You counteract that, which is good information, with the inflationary numbers, and you you look at, and there's a couple of different ways that people look at inflation, right? You have the normal bundle of goods, but you exclude um, gas and food costs, and that's been a pretty rock-solid number, and it's been pretty high. I would say that, especially in 2020, 21 more so, probably, without looking at the fuel and food costs, you were shorting. And we, we pushed up into you know, 9, 10, 11% inflation. We were way above that number. Like it just, it, you, it's almost impossible because you think about it, if you're not willing to look at the fuel, you're not, looking to look at the, not willing to look at the food, and then you go out there and you try to get your car towed and you realize that the fuel surcharge is mm-hmm. 40% of what the, just the travel is, and you're like, this doesn't make any sense. And so you've got um, two sides that are trying to argue against it. And part of our whole societal problem right now is we're not willing to see each other's per- per- perspectives at all. So uh, looking into 2023, <clears throat> I think we'll probably continue, as we were talking about before, see those rates ratchet up. I think that you know when the Fed came out and said recently out in Utah that you know, we're not going to slow down, we have to continue because we believe inflation is more rampant or however they worded it. Um, and you know we had had a thought and there's a belief maybe in the markets that we might see a little bit more ramp up and then some kind of curtailment in 2023. And it all but dissuaded that or persuaded everyone to believe that's not gonna happen um, now. So I think that you're probably gonna see more um, mortgage rate increases, it's just gonna happen to those rates. And as again, we were talking about before we started, the rates now on a 30 year fixed are normal, but they don't feel normal when you've had it built into yeah. your psyche for a long period of time. And so I think, <clears throat> I think again, we're going to see supply chain hasn't been figured out yet. The employment, that, that's the more baffling one. I can, I can understand the supply chain, the constraints associated with moving things overseas or, or just the logger jams that we're seeing um, you know, at the ports or anything like that. I get the supply chain. It's the workforce demand, the human capital side of the supply chain that I, I just don't understand at all. And so you would think, and you know, I've tried to rationalize it in this way, a lot of those people tried to start their own businesses or try to better themselves or try to go back to school or something along those lines. Well, let's just look at the business avenue. The, the success rate of new businesses hasn't changed. It's still like a 90% failure rate. Mm-hmm. So at some point you would think that those people would enter back into the workforce. They would find their way back to those jobs. And then the, the second part of that is what we're having issues with, or maybe not just us, but employers in general, the expectations of the salary or the the benefits that are going to come along with it and the reality are still nowhere near them. They're totally diametrically opposed. What I will say is that the reality's floor has raised, right? We understand as business owners now that our previous expectation and reality of what we would be able to pay someone to get to do a job is no longer the case. And so in mass, that has been elevated. Mm -hmm. But the supply side, 
they their expectations of what they should demand in the marketplace is still not where the expectations of reality or reality in general are. And so I don't know how that corrects itself. I, I don't know how you get there until desperation kicks in. And if we continue to have inflation, somebody, I just, as many people would ask, where are these people making any money? How are they paying their bills? Right. And so if you look at you know deferrals on student loans and you looked at the, how long they rent deferred places and you, you looked at all of those things, there had to have been a breaking point. If there isn't already passed, there should be one coming up fairly soon. And you know, I, I want people to be happy in their jobs, but I really want us to be able to function as a society and, gr- and grander as a world where we all are interconnected, no matter how you look at it. I mean, the Ukrainian issue has really shown that we, I didn't know how much wheat came out of Ukraine. I didn't know how much of any of that I would, right. you know. And it's just, it's slammed markets all over the world because of it. So, what would you say of, of the clients that you have, and you have clients from a variety of industries? What are they coming to you uh, with the most right now? I mean, what are, what are the challenges they're presenting, or when they come to you to talk about, um, you know, their business? What are the, what are they looking for right now from a, a bank relationship? Yeah, I think the um, tide has shifted mightily. So when you got away from PPP. And you got away from the ERTC, you got away from the so the uh, payroll protection program, and you got away from the uh, employer retention tax credit, where millions of dollars were funneled into businesses, <clears throat> and the ownership and leadership team looked at their balance sheet and they saw several hundred thousand to millions of dollars in cash just sitting there, and they got really accustomed to that, and so they stopped the debt side. They just stopped it, and then maybe 12 months into that, they started to see those numbers start to dwindle and they still weren't taking cash. And as one client explained it to me, family-owned business, he's like, it's like they're, they think it's Christmas every day and they're just taking money out of my pocket. <laughs> well, first of all, it's your business. Second, you have a whole bunch of unused capital from me, an investment. And, and I think people forget sometimes that the bank is not, we're, we're issuing debt, yes, but it's the investment we take in businesses. And I think that, again, is the National Bank of Indianapolis sort of for, it's the way that we really look at it is we want to invest in businesses. We don't just want to give you money to, to go out and do whatever or work in capital purposes or capital ex- exposure, ex- excuse me, capital expenditure monies. We want to invest in you for your vision for where you want to take the business. And I think that um, that has, the dial has turned back to, I want to hold on to some of this cash. I want to actually use some of the debt you say you want to give me. And in many cases, the old adage is the bank always wants to give you money when you don't need it. Well, ask for money when you don't need it so that when you do need it, you've got it, right? And so those things are, are sometimes not necessarily in the business owner's mind. I'm starting to see people take out those capital expenditure deals. They're actually using those funds to, to buy equipment rather than to use cash to buy the equipment. And so I think that's really one of the main turns. There was a, a really unique, so we had a lot of mergers and acqui- uh, acquisitions activity, especially in 2021, because they were so flush with cash and there was a point at which the sellers were so flush with cash and many of them did well during the beginning of the pandemic that they're like, if I'm going to cash out, I'm going to cash out right now. And there were willing buyers. It slowed down for sure. I think people are either one digesting a lot of those acquisitions or they're focusing on their main business line and trying to expand it out. 
And so we, we are seeing less probably M&A activity and more back to that working capital function where we've had lines of credit for two years that have had no, no advances, none. And so, you know, from the inner side of the bank, we, any dollar that I, um, not any dollar, but near every dollar that I promise to you in a commitment, I have to reserve for, right? And so it costs me money if you don't utilize it. That's why we charge some commitment fees just to have something there. Uh, and then the due diligence fees, we usually ask the borrowers to, to hold on to so that we can try not to have to spend money on things that aren't gonna actually earn us any assets or any revenue. And so that I think we're really seeing now from a point at which those things just sat and so we were paying on things that weren't being utilized, but we were still offering. So, I mean, you could have called me that next day and asked for it and we would have given it to you to now <clears throat> you still have it and we're, we're actually getting some kind of return on it. So, and, and this is not a secret, but as the interest rates rise, we obviously make more money. Mm -hmm. And so you, you hope that balances it out by whatever you're able to charge on the services or the provider, the products you provide so that in the end it's, you know, still about neutral, but uh, so that, you know, 2023, I'm, I'm going to guess that the clients are going to continue through that. We see people, um, even now in the raising, uh, rising rate environment, we're seeing people refinance buildings or acquire buildings and not so much, or they're not so much worried about the interest rates uh, as they continue to go up, though, as we were talking about before. The last time the Fed increased the, the benchmark rates, long-term rates actually fell. It was counter yeah. counterintuitive, but it actually drove longer-term prospects down uh, with the increase in the short-term rates. So uh, hard to say what's going to happen in the next Fed meeting, where they're going to go outside. I'm pretty sure they're going to increase rates one more time uh, this fiscal year. If it's not September, it'll be October, whenever they have the opportunity to do so. Um, but, you know, 2023, still shot in the dark, but I'm going to guess we're going to see more people using debt, even at the higher interest rates. Yeah. So we, we, we know that we're in technical recession, which we've obviously narrowed down to just by a definition. Yeah. When I look at our business, when I look at other people in our industry, either upstream or downstream from us, uh, when I ask people in different industries, some that are very capital intensive, uh, for example, yesterday uh, evening, I was talking to a gentleman who owns a business and uh, they are in a, uh, they're in the construction industry. And I said, what does your business look like? Not really now, because a lot of that capital has already been committed, but what do new orders look like? Are you seeing any impact with rising rate environment or slowdown in investment that has new orders slowing down? He said, we're still slammed today and new orders are coming in just as, as busy as they have been the last couple of years, which is encouraging to me because it tells me that there are still people out there that have the willingness or the taste for investment, uh, whether it be new builds or renovation, whatever it may be. And this is all on the commercial side. Mm -hmm. It Within our industry, we ask a lot of our kitchen cabinet manufacturers who are almost entirely residential, single family residential. And that spectrum is from a, you know, 250 to $300,000 value home to five, $10 million mm -hmm. value home. So it's just very broad range there who are saying that their backlogs are still anywhere from two to six months, most of which are in that four to six month range, and new orders coming in the door remain very busy. 
the worst news we've heard is, well, there's a little bit of a slowdown, but we don't mean slowdown like it's getting slow. It's just coming back to some sort of pre-pandemic normal, which in our world would be great if slow meant normal. So that being said, when you look at where our industry is and where our company specifically is in the business cycle, we are not on the downslope towards you know, heading back towards equilibrium and we are not below equilibrium. Um, if anyone knows the, the four stages of the business cycle, A, B, C, D, I would say we are probably somewhere towards the top side of B. Mm-hmm. Um, being optimistic, mid-slope, pessimistic, almost going into C. Again, that's crystal ball, sure. right? So my question to you is, if you say we're in technical recession, not you, but the economists say we're in technical recession, do you have clients that fit in any particular industry or market buckets that are telling you, yes, I am feeling recession? And if so, what would those buckets be? How would you label those buckets by industry, market, what have you? Yeah, I, I can actually ask uh, a quick answer. None of my clients are really pointing to what they would categorize as a traditional recession. So even in the, <clears throat> the, the manufacturer and distribution side, I, I wouldn't say that anyone has made any mention of it. Um, in the warehousing side, nobody has said anything about it. I, it really, you know, even in the hospitality side, I would say that as costs continue to increase, and you can go to any restaurant and feel that, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the dollar menu is now $1.99. You know, it's right. all, all of those things. Um, I haven't seen or had any clients approach me with real concerns. I would say that <clears throat> one of my larger relationships probably has seen a softening, but it's weirdly soft. Um, they've seen that, you know, that client is a manufacturer and distributor, and it's kind of, uh, again, he would categorize it as a weirdly softened spot because the demand hasn't slowed. But he can see something in the numbers that said, okay, here's a normalized, maybe back to your point, Joe, like a normalized position that they haven't felt in two years. And Mm -hmm. so he's not worried about it. He's just seeing it that way. I would say that back to, you know, another, another, um, client who got absolutely, uh, like his whole business had to stop because he did a lot of construction for, uh, construction of uh, displays for, uh, where you were in Atlanta, like in a, in a booth or something a trade show. or a trade show convention. Yeah. And so those all stopped. He also did a lot of work for, um, call it outdoor festivals where certain industries wanted to be there to show off products and things like that. So all of that stopped and yeah. what, but on the converse side saw medical call it like a larger scale, um, um, surgical implements and and uh, just drugs, things that people needed to teach doctors. They asked his business shifted a little bit, not that they weren't doing it before, but it shifted almost exclusively to that so that he could keep things going so that they could take these displays into hospital parking lots so doctors could come out. <coughs> so they've completely reversed, and now it's back the opposite direction, and he's like full bore again because all these things were, you know, COVID be damned and we're going to, going to go and have a good time and listen to music or whatever it turns out to be. So I think that <clears throat> the answer is uh, now much longer than I intended it to be, but no, there have not been a, an industry or a client that's come to me and said, 
yeah, I think we might have a little bit of a problem. Not even so much a problem. I'm just feeling the, the constraints and the pressures a little bit more. Um, I would have guessed that the residential home contractors would have felt a little bit there. Um, what I think some of the issues that we might see, if there is, and I'm not saying that there will be, but if there is a contraction in home pricing, let's say that that's this, we're not, boy, saying the word bubble and meaning the word bubble, I don't mean it to come off this way. I really hope that we're not. But if there is some kind of inflated price point now, and if you follow any kind of um, you know, search on residential property, you'll start to see more, instead of the price increases, you'll see the price dropped or the price lowered or whatever it turns out to be, or back on the market or something like that. Um, we're seeing maybe some more of that where people were out there thinking, you know what, I can afford this $1.2 million house or $600,000 house or whatever was your, your, say your stretch goal when the interest rates were two, two and a half. But now that they're approaching six or more, now it's harder to get comfortable with that large of a build or, or whatever for your budget. And so I would have expected there to be a little bit more. We're not um, heavily uh, developer, especially on the residential side. Commercial, I'd say we, we are pretty pretty um, well into the commercial development space, but not the retail development space. And so residential, excuse me. But we still have to worry about people who have overextended themselves on the mortgage side. So you saw, and this was heavily in consumer and credit cards, but you know some of the bigger players, they did a huge increase to their loan loss provisions just because they start to worry about those downward pr pressures on individual households or in individuals in general. And they have to concern themselves with what's our real risk now given. And so while we don't necessarily, we always have concerns to do this right and proper thing to do as a bank, but I wouldn't say that we are overwhelmingly concerned about our client base at this point, whether consumer or commercial. I think we're, because we know our clients so well, again, one of the reasons why even in 08 and 09, we did everything that we could to help our clients move through the perils, not just say, give me the keys and you can go now, or you know, you, you gotta go find another bank. That, that didn't happen as much. And, and I was at the time working for a much larger institution that they had that mentality. We don't know what's gonna happen, so we're just gonna pull the plug. And if you've got a $100,000 home equity line of credit, maybe now it's 50 and you know it's just the way that it was and so you if you recall and it's a really weird time people were just drawing on their home equity products so that they didn't have them pulled from them and i still have clients that come up to me and ask me hey i haven't used my line in a year should i draw on it just to make sure they show some I'm like if you don't need the money don't draw on it so in the end it's it's a very different place but you know, I don't see as much as I did then in 07 and 08 and 09, people really feeling, oh, something bad's going to happen. Well, I think it's it's fair to say that, it, I guess, whatever you want to call normal times, I don't even yeah. know how you define right. that anymore, but we whatever know. you want to call that, <laughs> industries or, you know, whatever category an industry fits in, it's typically at different points in the business right. cycle, but you can kind of almost lay them over the top of one another from different points in time. Mm -hmm and see that they tend to more or less fall in a very similar order, historically speaking. Obviously, 08, 09, everyone was below the line. Yeah. It was just, just from a macro standpoint, everything, no matter what you did, kind of went to hell. Mm. Now, it, it seems like the dots on the chart are so heavily fragmented, even within industries, uh, and that's what we see. We, we could give you examples of, of 
markets within our world that are feeling recessionary pressure. Uh, what I would call probably more a resetting of inventory, mm-hmm. which typically is part of, sure. you know, it, it's part of the recession. And if, if you can either it's on the front end if you're a good at guessing games, or hopefully not on the back end because then you're really trying to play catch up. Mm-hmm. But it's it's so fragmented, and I feel like that that's what we're seeing across so many different industries. Why why you could walk down the street and ask a hundred people and. Three might say, oh, yeah, that's terrible. And 97 say, well, no, this is awesome. I'm taking a wheelbarrow full of cash to the bank. Sure. Um, so, and, yeah, okay, interesting. I was kind of wondering what your answer would be in terms of, yeah, we're definitely seeing some points or not, but doesn't sound like uh, we, we there's do, an overwhelming yes there, anywhere. It's not a client or an industry that we, we have exposure to per se, but I think that if you look at um, those luxury recreational vehicles, thinking about RVs and thinking about larger boats, um, things like that. I think the, the boat market is still pretty hot if you, even if you have like a small tritune or a pontoon or a, um, a deck boat or something like that, even a fishing boat, just a little uh, schooner. So I think that those things, um, higher end, we're starting to see pullback. I had a, a CFO of one of my clients who has some exposure into that through distribution. And they went and visited the northern section of the state, and, and it definitely felt like the inventory level was very, very high. And if you remember, oh, 2020, 21, um, it was like six months out to get yourself a, a, even a whiff of a Prescott or something, mm-hmm. you know, it was one of those big RVs. And I think that that is, that is, has always been a leading indicator of recession. Um, I think that they are on the front end when people start to pull back. Um, but again, we are in such a weird place because a lot of people are sitting on a lot of cash and they haven't necessarily all done anything with it. And so it is um, probably propped up some industries that in the past would have given us pretty heavy indication that there's trouble ahead. And if you listen to you know, the same, same thing, if you have 10 different economists in front of you, and you don't know they're talking in the same group about the same subject, you probably get six different answers and four of them that might happen to agree with the other six in some aspects. But it's just, uh, it's so different right now because you can almost make out of it whatever you will and we're not gonna know it's till it's too late. (laughs) Which is one of the reasons I think it's always interesting that we don't normally have an actual official wording that we were in or, or are in a recession until like a year later. Like they look at the overall data and then say, oh yeah, those two quarters right there, that was a recession, but we pulled ourselves out of it. Um, I think they just like the numbers to stabilize overall. Yeah. And That's like telling me it rained after I'm already wet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm aware of that. Exactly, yeah, thank you, thank you for that. But you know, it, it goes back to the original conversation about <clears throat> inflation's here, unemployment's here, you know, housing starts are here, all those things that we would normally say, they're all gonna be one way or the other, now they're split. And it's, it logically doesn't make any sense to, to a lot of us, so. So you may have answered this indirectly. Is there one key indicator that you're looking at to try to help I, I wish. The I, I wish there were. Um, I really think that it's it's so hard right now. The the unemployment number I think would have normally traditionally given us some really good indication of where we were going. I think you know 2020 and the amount of shedding of jobs that the economy took on to now having basically built it back 
um, and job growth. You know, it's nice to see that there have been jobs created, but you're really creating old jobs that were there before or um, new jobs that have just taken that job and, and made a variation of that job. Um, so that would be a normal one. I think that the inflationary numbers and the pressures that come there, at some point there's going to be a hell of a break point mm-hmm. and families won't be able to, to do, you know, another client that manufactures, um, alcoholic beverages. And one of the, the things that they've seen, cause their price point is say, um, moderate, low to moderate, like, um, easily access access point for, for individuals who are looking for that particular beverage. And they saw in 2020, 21, and, and sort of starting to wane back where they've just, their clients have gone up market, just a small amount. So where maybe their price point is seven to 11. Now it's 12 to 18 that the people are really going for, and they're going to start to inch their way back. And they're starting mm-hmm. to see that demand happen again. So that might be, that might be an in, interesting client to utilize for to your question, Joe, where it's more like, have they seen it's the reverse and the reverse is the indication of the same in the softening, except their business then heats up because people are not able to spend on, you know, instead of going out and buying a bottle of Camus, you go out and buy a bottle of, you know, uh, something from Behringer, um, you know, in their normal price point. So you're cutting 40 or 50 or $60 out because you could do that when, you know, you had more cash and now you're not and you're worried about the future. And so I think that that client in particular is, is, a good indicator of yeah, the van is really high. The stockpile and inventory is starting to wane and it's going in the direction we need it to. And I think it's because people are feeling the pressure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, we're a consumer driven economy. Mm-hmm. So looking at that behavior, yeah, I think what, what we see is not so much at this point, consumers leaving the uh, buying pool. It's just that it's, it's being, it's being reallocated. Sure. So real estate, the person that was going to buy the million dollar home is not going to suddenly leave the market altogether. They may just be resetting the deck to where now they're maybe they're a $750,000 home buyer sure. because either they're concerned about their mortgage payment, the rates may have made what they could afford or their comfort level change, things like that, but they're not off the, the yeah. sideline entirely. Yeah, so. no, I totally agree. I think I'm, I'm not sure, you know, the, 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 those sin areas, the, those are ones that just modify themselves. The, the people who don't have a boat right now, maybe they're not going to buy one, but maybe instead they're going to buy, you know, some kind of other smaller thing, smaller item, or, you know, the people that are just looking to, um, to just to get by, you know, that, I think that's the thing where inflation comes in. It's not so much the people to your point, like three people are saying this is doom and seven people are saying this is either normal or better than it was before, those people are the ones that through this process are going to get hammered the most. The people that, and having grown up in this kind of um, environment where my parents didn't have much of anything, and so the dollar menu, which we didn't have when we were kids, but the dollar menu was basically just a normal menu when we were kids, um, it mattered. And so when you double that price point, you you have to think about the people who can't handle even that doubling uh, right and so that's that's where um you know I, I think focus needs to be maintained and not to say that i'm pushing for social safety nets further than where we are today but this is who it really hits and so trying to figure out how we can make everything uh, more obtainable and more um, uh, 
I don't know, more convenient in some ways is, is a, a good priority to try to focus our time on energy. Yeah. Well, the next episode will uh, <coughs> debate minimum wage. <laughs> that ought to be fun. Uh, yeah, you know, I think, <laughs> I, I, so it's funny, I say all that, and then I think about the fact that, that I was, um, and still pretty much an, uh, uh, not an advocate for the 15. And uh, the reason being is that, one, you get to a point in which all of that has to trickle back to someone. And so it's going to trickle back to the same people I was just talking about, that $15 minimum wage, or whatever it turns out to be, that's one of the reasons why the dollar menu is dollar ninety nine menu now, because they have to find a way, even in a large franchise, but take it even more to a mom and pop burger place on the corner. They've got to figure out how do I pay these people? You know, I have a very good friend who owns several pizzerias and he was having a hard time finding just a dishwasher. That was all he needed. And it was, it was impossible to find somebody because in the end you can get more compensation somewhere else than doing that job, and so it, it just messed up the whole model. Um, and, you know, and technology is another thing where you go into a McDonald's now and you have greeted by a screen instead of a person with a smile on their face, right? Uh, and it's kind of interesting to watch people because I was in one where the screens weren't working and you had to go talk to the people, and some people just don't know how to do that anymore. Right. It's very interesting in, yeah. in, in this point in, in our history. So well, it, at that same show in Atlanta, automation was a, a topic that I heard multiple times been there for a long time but for some reason it stood out to me that i i had heard from four or five different people that they were looking at uh, machines that were more fully automated to further replace human bodies oh yeah and it's only going to increase i'm sure robots yeah, yeah literally we have uh, another client who manufactures cookies and and um like I think of it is. Um, I mean, you got free example day at the bank. You got clients that do booze, clients yeah. that do cookies, clients that do pizza. And um, you didn't bring any of that with you? You know, <laughs> uh, there might be some in the car. We'll see. But it, he he is looking now at their plant and trying to figure out how do we better automate all of those processes um, purely because it, it is getting harder and harder to find people that are quality, that'll stay, that won't jump ship for, you know, an extra couple of dollars now. That, that's not always been a problem, but it seems to be worse now to the point where he's even thinking about how do, how do I know that a, a machine and a robot is going to work? And so he's figured out how much it would be just to rent one per month to try to figure out, okay, how can I use this robot to potentially cut back on FTE, uh, full-time equivalent yeah. employees. Mm -hmm. And it's it's where we're going. Unfortunately, it is, you know, yeah. it is well, the future. Manufacturing in America brought to you by Jarvis. Yeah. Well, I asked. <laughs> I know that reference. Uh, Shout out to my good. son, who's a big Marvel movie fan. Yeah, yeah. nothing wrong with Jarvis. Iron Man. Jarvis is awesome. I did ask one of these guys that was looking at that. I said, well, what's, what does that piece of equipment cost? And he told me, and it's not a small number. Right. But I said, what's, what's the ROI on that? He's like, under two years. Yeah. I was like, oh. Yeah, that's pretty telling. Yeah, they're, they're, this particular uh, manufacturer is putting in a couple of different kinds of bagging lines, so literally just the packaging lines. And it is uh, remarkable how fast the payback is and how many hands, human hands, it can take out of the mix. Yeah. And so even you flip all the way to the other side, and we're talking about a contract manufacturer of uh, pharmaceuticals, so you know, larger institution like some of the main players here in the state don't want to do their own filling implements. Mm -hmm. And so they contract this manufacturer to do them for them. And their line is a very expensive line and is actually, it's, it's beautiful if you like that kind of machinery and it'll only take three people to run it. 
like, and this is a line that would probably be the length of this building. And it is, it's only there, they're only there to make sure if something goes wrong and the machine actually knows when something goes wrong. So it can actually fix the machine or tell you, Hey, come over here. There's something there that's broken, fix that. And we'll be fine and ready to go. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's remarkable how this technology is, is moving us forward. Yeah. We may have to have that person on here as a guest too. I think we know who you're talking about. Yes. He would love to do that. Yeah. Um, any, any advice you would get? We don't want to sound all doom and gloom folks. I mean, things are still extremely busy, extremely active out there. Um, any piece of advice you would give kind of your average, uh, client today? Yeah. Um, I, this is the same piece of advice I give to prospects and clients. If you don't have a board of directors and most of the small businesses <clears throat> and not even just small business, many of the large businesses don't have a board of directors, a bunch of people who are just there for advice. You need to have a good attorney, a good CPA, a good banker, usually a good um, financial advisor and or a, a manager of just money in general or um, and an insurance guy. If I said that already, I said it twice. Sorry. Um, those people. Those people are there to give you advice, but also to let you bounce ideas off of them, right? Mm -hmm. Like, this is where I want to go. This is my vision. This is what I think I want to do. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, I like to say of the three main people, so the pre uh, attorney, CPA, and banker, only one of them doesn't have the juice running while you're talking and <laughs> shooting the bull with them, right? And I'm usually paying Which for the one golf. Is that? Yeah, <laughs> I'm usually <laughs> paying for the golf, paying for food, paying for drinks, whatever it turns out to be. Um, but the bigger picture is if you have that group of people and you have an idea and you go to that group of people and you say, this is what I want to do. And you have two of them say, that is a terrible idea. Don't do that. It's probably not a good idea. And if you have two that are saying, that's actually a pretty good idea. Let's figure out how we do it. You might have something there. And so people forget that it's not just about tax time. It's not just about, hey, I'm being sued or, hey, I want to sue somebody. It's about the, the actual conversation and relationship. And one of the things that I, I really believe is the most important and probably the reason why I've been successful, successful is it's all a collaboration. Mm -hmm. My favorite conversations happen when you call me and you're like, I think I might be crazy, but let me run, run something by you. Let's, let's talk about it. Hey, can, can we go have lunch? Can we go have coffee? It doesn't make a difference. And we sit down and all we do is talk. And there's you know, no, no impending pressure. There's no, hey, I want $5 million to go buy this building over here and whatever. It's, hey, does this make sense? And where am I, what am I missing? Where am I not seeing the, the, the thing that you're going to see? And I think people forget that. <clears throat> and then that's you know active, that's AB, right? Usually inside of the life cycle. What I think a lot of owners forget, and I cannot stress this enough, is the CD, the exit the succession, the buy, sell, all of those things that, that really, I'll do it tomorrow. And tomorrow never comes until it's too late, right? And so you, I had this one conversation, I finally got a business owner to sit down with an estate attorney, and he wasn't married, but he had a long-term a, a significant other. He, and they all lived together. He had his three, her three daughters and his two sons. Everyone was under one roof. They were all over the place. And I was like, what happens if you die? He's yeah, the only he person. Will, on, he? he didn't have anything. And <clears throat> he's literally at this point, and the, the attorney looked at him and said, um, because his, one of his sons was getting married, and not mine, he said, nobody likes her. 
And I'm like, okay, <clears throat> here's what's gonna happen. He's gonna die. She's gonna want whatever he believe, she believes he owns of your business or like the equity in it. And you're gonna have a real fight or they get divorced, doesn't die. And, but he has some kind of ownership and she's gonna sue him for it. And he's going to have to force you to sell the company so that he can pay his soon to be ex-wife. That is, it, you could see the color leaving his face because he hadn't thought about it that way. He didn't think it through. And so people don't spend enough time, not just on the sale today. Like I wanna understand how do I grow my top line? How do I perfect my bottom line? How do I make as much money as I can to take care of my family and my, my, my uh, employees, my clients better, whatever it turns out to be. It's how do I get unwind this if I need to unwind it, what do I do? What happens if I die? And then you know, what happens if I get sued? Insulation from risk. I, mean, I, I have other clients who kept all of the real estate in their personal names and they had like eight locations. What are you doing? Like this is, this is all, they're going to sue the bejesus out of you if somebody falls and slips and hurt themselves on your premises. People just aren't giving enough time energy and it, it's painful right because you're paying for something that you don't necessarily think you have to pay for but i promise you you do and so those i think from a b really having a conversation and, and finding a bank that is a relationship focused bank that really i enjoy nothing more than sitting around and saying hey where are you going and how can i help you get there and then the end how do i prepare and protect my family in the event that something happens to me or like let's say you two were sole owners of the businesses together 50 50 and one of you passes away vince's wife is now your partner and you either like her or you don't like her or same on the other side kelly's your partner do you really want that problem or do you want to have a buy sell put in place so you know exactly what you're going to pay her or him depending so that they are happy and they're out and so now it's just your business and people simply don't give enough time to that. And so that's, that is my boxed, this is the advice you should take. Well, I'd like to echo that by saying we have that pretty well buttoned up through all of our operating agreements. Yeah. And uh, you know, the, the next step is having your company own life insurance policies on the partners so right. that there's ways of funding it, things yeah. like that. It, it may be a few thousand dollars in legal fees, it may be annual insurance premiums, and it's worth every penny. Yeah, absolutely. So for listeners out there who just heard what Mike had to say, if you don't have a will or family planning, shame on you. Go get it done. And even more so, or not, not more, even more so, but as well, business planning as well. Yeah. If you love your spouse or your children, you got to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Having a buy sell in place, having key man insurance in place. I mean, it is night and day when you, as a, uh, the surviving partner inside of a partnership, wake up that day and your partner is gone and you realize I don't even want to get out of bed because I just lost my best friend or my brother or my dad or whoever and the bank isn't going to stop taking loan payments from me and my employees still need to work and it's a rudderless ship I need something and that say you get lucky and you buy a few million dollars and it satisfies all of the debt and it's just like <clears throat> when we plan for our spouses when we, if we pass away and we have enough life insurance, things you think about, how much is the mortgage? 
How much is the whatever car loan? How much is this loan, that loan? Do I have enough in there to pay that off? And then if you ever want the scariest conversation in your life, go to an insurance guy or girl and say, how much do I need to have my wife or my husband live on for the next 20 years and pay for college? Yeah, yeah, don't forget, I say you talk about Holy the debt, don't moly. forget about college. I have, I have four kids for the viewers out there. Um, how much do I need? And the number is going to make you not want to think about it. It's yeah. that bad, it's that big. Yeah. And so having any kind of preparation, as Joe said, is a step in the right direction, so. There you go. Free advice for all your listeners, you're welcome. Hey, uh, Mike, thanks for joining us today. We yeah. appreciate the time and all your insight. Thank all of you guys out there for listening or watching on the Assessor YouTube channel. We appreciate you guys tuning in today. Uh, again, if you haven't subscribed, please do so. Hit that notification bell so when new episodes like the one we're here with Mike drops, you will be notified. And don't forget, be industrious.